Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, the U.S. and Ukraine to start talks on security guarantees. So Ukrainian officials said on Sunday that Kiev will begin consultations with Washington this week on the U.S. providing Ukraine with security guarantees. So this is Andriy Yermak. He's the chief of staff for President Zelensky. He wrote on Telegram, quote, we are starting talks with the United States this week. Security guarantees for Ukraine will be concrete long-term obligations ensuring Ukraine's capacity to defeat and restrain Russian aggression in the future. This will clearly be drafted formats and mechanisms of support, end quote. So the State Department confirmed on Monday that these talks would begin this week. So at the recent NATO summit in Vilnius, the U.S. and the other G7 nations vowed that they would each begin negotiations on bilateral security deals with Ukraine, so each country separately to negotiate some sort of deal with the Ukrainians. Yermak said the idea is for the guarantees to be in effect until Ukraine secures NATO membership. So President Biden has publicly floated the idea of an Israel model for Ukraine, which would involve multi-year commitments to provide billions in military aid each year, but would not include NATO Article 5-style mutual defense guarantees. So Israel receives $3.8 billion in military aid annually under a 10-year memorandum of understanding. So the G7 commitment to Ukraine, of course, fell short of what Zelensky was hoping to get out of the NATO summit. He was very upset that the NATO communique did not extend an invitation to Ukraine to join NATO seen the White House say they can't join, you know, while this war is going on, because that would put NATO at war with Russia. That's what the White House has said. And they also didn't want to give them any kind of promise for when the war ends. So, you know, I know kind of coming out of that summit, it looks like, you know, it it didn't look good publicly for Ukraine and NATO. It kind of looked like they were divided and weak. But at the same time, you know, you have the U.S., you have President Biden in a speech that he gave after the summit really saying that, you know, we're expecting a long-term, you know, conflict here. And it's clear now that this Ukrainian counteroffensive has not been successful. And they just seem ready, you know, kind of to dig in and, and keep funding this this war, this stalemate. Um, but it's also not clear if this is sustainable for the U.S. and NATO because we know that they are depleting their ammunition stockpiles. That's the excuse that Biden used to start sending Ukraine cluster bombs. So only time will tell, you know, how long this is going to drag out. But for now, I mean, I think they are serious about wanting these long-term deals, you know, multi-year deals with Ukraine. Um, So we'll see how this all uh, shapes out between the U.S. and Ukraine, these negotiations. All right, the next one here, Mexico calls for Russia's participation in Saudi-hosted Ukraine talks. So Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador said Monday that his country would attend talks on Ukraine that are set to be held in Saudi Arabia this weekend only if Russia is invited. 
He said, quote, if there's acceptance from both Ukraine and Russia to look for solutions to achieve peace, we'll participate. We don't want the Russia-Ukraine war to continue. It's very irrational. The only thing that benefits from it is the war industry. End quote. So while this is being billed as peace talks, Russia has not been invited to the summit in Saudi Arabia. Nations that are not aligned with the U.S. and NATO on the war have been invited, including India, Brazil, and China. But it's not clear at this point which countries will attend. Uh, They invited about 30 nations to attend this summit. And the idea here is for Ukraine and its Western backers to use the summit to try and convince non-aligned nations to adopt Kiev's demands for peace, which include a full Russian withdrawal from all the territory that's been captured, and that is currently a non-starter for negotiations with Moscow. Ukraine is also demanding that Russia cede Crimea, which has been controlled by Moscow since 2014, and is populated by people who are happy that they are part of the Russian Federation. For their part, Russia insists that any future peace deal must recognize the territory it has annexed in Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporozhye. And that demonstrates how far apart these two sides are when it comes to peace talks. Uh, Russia, you know, in response to this summit, they said that they will monitor the talks in Saudi Arabia that will be held this weekend. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, quote, Undoubtedly, Russian will keep an eye on this meeting. We'd have to fully understand what goals are being set and what the organizers actually plan to talk about. We have repeatedly said that any attempts to somehow contribute to a peaceful settlement deserve a positive assessment, end quote. Uh, Peskov also added, though, uh, sounding pretty negative, he said that a peace deal with the Ukrainian government at this time was impossible as long as Ukraine is used exclusively as a tool in the collective West's war against Russia. So I do think, you know, I've been very pessimistic lately about the prospect for peace talks. As long as the U.S. and NATO are backing Ukraine, uh, you know, they're not going to happen at this point. So, you know, who knows what's going to come of this summit. I doubt that they're going to be able to convince, you know, India and Brazil and China to start kind of adopting the Ukrainian and, and Western talking points on this. I I highly doubt that. So I don't know if much will really be achieved here, um, except, you know, it's not going to bring the war closer to an end, I don't think, unfortunately. All right. Uh, the next one here, Russia says that it intensified strikes on Ukraine. So Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said Monday that Russia has intensified strikes on Ukraine in response to Ukrainian attacks on Russian territory. Shoigu said that amid the stalled Ukrainian counteroffensive, Ukraine, quote, backed by its Western sponsors, has concentrated on terror attacks on civilian infrastructure in Russian cities and settlements. Considering the latest developments, additional measures have been taken to enhance protection from air and sea attacks, the intensity of strikes on Ukrainian military sites, including those as as the base for these terror attacks, has been raised several fold. End quote. Shoigu added that Russia had launched strikes in retaliation for the latest Ukrainian bombing of the Crimean Bridge, which connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. So we saw a lot of heavy missile and drone strikes in Odessa, which is where Russia claims the 
attack on the Crimean Bridge was launched from, and it was launched with a drone boat, um, at least one. I'm not sure if it was more than one or not. Um, and, you know, you read we read these reports saying that the Biden administration isn't concerned about attacks inside Russia escalating the war, but it does escalate the war, and it's the people, you know, the Ukrainians that live in these cities that have to deal with this. Of course, it does not impact, you know, the U.S. or Washington. Um, so in recent weeks, there has been an uptick in drone attacks on Moscow as well. There's been several just in the past week alone. And after the latest drone attack hit Moscow on Sunday, Zelensky said that the war was returning to Russia. A Ukrainian Air Force spokesman said the idea of the attacks on Moscow was to impact those who felt the war was distant. So Ukrainian officials used to be more hesitant to take credit for operations inside Russia, but the rhetoric is much more, you know, bellicose about it now. Um, We had Ukraine's military intelligence explicitly warning last week that these attacks would increase in size, uh, in scale, as they put it. And since then, we've seen um, a lot more drone attacks on Moscow. So Shoigu also claimed on Monday that Ukraine has lost more than 20,800 troops in its counteroffensive. Not clear if that's total casualties, including dead and wounded. Uh, But this number, you know, it's not confirmed because both sides have not been sharing their own casualty figures, which is, you know, very strange uh, for this war. You know, we don't really know how many people have been killed. Um, So... You know, it's again, it's it's just a strange thing. And and the media, you know, they've been in interviewing Solushny, who's the Ukrainian commander in chief. And in one of the interviews in The Washington Post, he said every day he gets an update on who was killed in the battlefield. And The Washington Post didn't think to ask, you know, how many people have died. I, you know, I don't know. It's just very strange. Um, the lack of, you know, concern that the U.S. seems to have for how many Ukrainians are being killed. It just doesn't seem to matter to them. All right, the next one here, this is from Kyle over at the Libertarian Institute. Trump says that Russiagate was a coup and it fueled the war in Ukraine. So in an op-ed published by Newsweek, former President Donald Trump said that the Russiagate conspiracy was a coup attempt that led to the war in Ukraine. Trump warned the Russophobia hysteria created by the conspiracy theory could start World War III. Trump said, quote, an unelected cabal in the senior ranks of our government in concert with their chosen candidate, Hillary Clinton and their allies in the media launched the de facto coup attempt known as the Russia hoax. Their goal was to prevent my election and failing that to throw me out of office or sabotage my presidency, undercut my agenda in Congress, block my domestic reforms and interfere with my foreign policy, end quote. Trump references the report compiled by John Durham that vindicates his claim that Russiagate was a conspiracy invented by his political opposition. Another Trump claim bolstered by the Durham report is that the American intelligence community wrongfully pursued the investigation into ties between his campaign and the Kremlin. Trump identified that the conspiracy theory impacted Russia policy. He said, quote, at a critical moment when we should have been reducing tensions with Russia, The Russia hoax stoked mass hysteria that helped drive Russia straight into the arms of China. Instead of having a better relationship with Russia as I worked to build, we now have a proxy war with Russia, fueled in part by the lingering fumes of Russiagate delirium, end quote. 
So Kyle explains uh, that, you know, Trump is seeking to solely blame those who pushed the Russiagate hoax for the destruction of U.S. relations. But as president, Trump took a very aggressive stance against Moscow. And certainly, you know, Russiagate uh, has a lot to do with that. Um, You know, he was definitely under pressure to be hawkish toward Russia. But it's, you know, we can't forget that he was very hawkish toward Russia, you know, tearing up major arms control treaties, the INF and open skies. He was the first one to send missiles to Ukraine. So there was already, you know, a proxy war going on at a much smaller scale. Um, So we can't forget that history. Uh, But it's going to be an election, an interesting uh, election season. I mean, I don't know. Things are going to get pretty crazy, I think. Um, But just when it comes to the the back and forth about the war in Ukraine, because right now it seems like Trump is the front runner for the Republicans. Um, So, you know. It's going to be interesting. Uh, Okay, so the next one here, U.S. to establish a new spy center in Australia. So after two days of talks in Australia, the U.S. and Australian governments announced that they will form a combined intelligence center to give the U.S. more spy capabilities in the region to monitor China. So the U.S. and Australia said in a joint statement, quote, the principals agreed to establish combined intelligence center Australia within Australia's Defense Intelligence Organization by 2024. The center would further enhance the long-standing intelligence cooperation between the Australian Defense Intelligence Organization and the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency focused on analyzing issues of shared strategic concern in the Indo-Pacific, end quote. So the the statement did not mention China by name, but the U.S.'s military buildup in Australia and elsewhere in the region is being done explicitly to prepare for a future war with China. This is being done to keep an eye on what China is doing in the Pacific Island nations and in Southeast Asia. So according to Australia's ABC News, officials from the Defense Intelligence Agency and their Australian counterparts have said that the center is expected to focus sharply on China's military footprint in the region and its moves to cement security ties with countries across Asia and the Pacific. So the spy center is part of a broader increase in the U.S.'s military footprint in Australia that was announced during Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's visit to Canberra. And I mentioned some of this yesterday in the uh, Assange article. So the two countries said that they would help, uh, that the U.S. would help Australia begin producing guided missiles and rockets by 2025. And the U.S. is also going to ramp up submarine deployments to Australia and begin regular rotations of U.S. Army watercraft. And during the meetings, again, as I covered yesterday, but it's very important, Australian officials raised the issue of Julian Assange and Blinken waved it off, totally rejected it. So, you know, it's just not good because there was some hope that maybe this pressure from the Australian government would do something. But obviously they're not willing to really put pressure on the U.S. or use any of their leverage because they're going along with this whole military buildup. And uh, the next one, oh, I actually left up the story about Assange um, from yesterday. So the next one here, Blinken backs Western African nations threat to use force in Niger. So Secretary of State Antony Blinken has expressed support for the economic community of West African states 
after it threatened to use force against coup leaders in Niger if President Mohamed Bazoum is not reinstated. So this is a block, a 15-nation block of West African nations, although a few have been suspended uh, after military coups. I know Mali and Burkina Faso. Uh, but these leaders announced sanctions and said that if Bazoum is not reinstated within a week, the bloc will take all measures necessary to restore constitutional order in Niger, and such measures may include the use of force. So following this summit, Blinken released a statement backing the bloc. He said, quote, The United States welcomes and commends the strong leadership of the economic community of West African states, heads of state and government to defend constitutional order in Niger. We join them and regional leaders in calling for the immediate release of President Mohamed Bazoum and his family and the restoration of all state functions to the legitimate, democratically elected government, end quote. So, you know, there's Blinken basically explicitly saying that they would support a military intervention in Niger launched by these these, uh, African countries. And on Monday, one of the coup leaders in Niger claimed that the ousted government authorized a French military attack on the presidential palace to free Bazoum. So according to Al Jazeera, in response to these allegations that, that France was planning some sort of military action in Niger, the French foreign ministry did not confirm or deny if it was planning something like that. All they said was the only legitimate authority it recognized in Niger was Bazoum. So I think that's a sign that they're at least considering something like that. And, you know, the whole military has gone behind this coup. There's been a lot of uh, pro-coup protesters, you know, storming uh, areas outside the French embassy, a lot of anti-French sentiment in the country. So any military intervention that's carried out in Niger, whether by France or these African countries, could involve the U.S., as there are about 1,100 U.S. troops in the country and a major American drone base known as Air Base 201, and I bet the U.S. does not want to give that up. The U.S. has provided counterterrorism assistance to Niger for about two decades, and at least one of the coup leaders previously received training from the U.S. Um, so definitely an area to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, I know Burkina Faso and Mali have issued a statement saying that they would, I meant to add that to this article, saying that if these countries, these other ECOWAS countries, you know, intervene in Niger, it would be like they're declaring war uh, against Mali and Burkina Faso as well. So um, maybe that will deter them. Um, so we'll see. And I, I mentioned here, I always have to put this in from Nick Terse over at The Intercept, just explaining, you know, the complete failure that U.S. counterterrorism policy has been in Africa. In 2002 and 2003, the U.S. Um, counted just nine terrorist attacks in all of Africa. And last year, just in a few countries in the West Africa there, there was 2,737 terrorist attacks. Complete and utter failure. But the U.S. does not want to leave, so that's why I wouldn't be surprised if they really back some sort of military intervention. Um, All right, so the next one here. Speaking of interventions, the U.S. wants a multinational force to intervene in Haiti. So this is another one from Kyle at the Libertarian Institute. Washington plans to introduce a resolution at the United Nations Security Council to authorize sending soldiers to Haiti 
The Caribbean country has fallen into chaos after President Jovenel Moise was assassinated over two years ago. The White House has been seeking a country to lead the multinational force for months and appears to have enlisted Kenya to serve that role. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said that the U.S. and Ecuador planned to introduce the resolution at the Security Council to authorize the deployment in the coming days. Miller indicated that more steps need to be taken before Kenyan troops arrive in Haiti. He said, quote, The second step is that the government of Kenya needs to conduct an assessment mission, which they plan to do in the coming days and weeks. We are committed to finding the resources to support this multinational force, end quote. So Washington has spent several months seeking a country to send their soldiers to Haiti. In October, American officials wanted Canada to take on the role, but Ottawa rejected Washington's demands. Um, so Kenya leading the mission could pose an issue as its soldiers are known to commit human rights abuses. Um, so, you know, foreign intervention in Haiti has a very, very dark history. You know, there is a very... Uh, chaotic un intervention and un you know what they call peacekeepers lots of rights abuses uh, lots of rape and things like that so just a really dark history and, and from how i understand it the people of haiti don't want you know foreign intervention they definitely want an end to a lot of the violence that's happening but um you know again just this dark history of u.s and un intervention there um <clears throat> all right so the next one here, the last story in the news section, the confidence in the U.S. military is the lowest in over two decades. So this is from Gallup, and it's based on a Gallup poll. Uh, Americans are now less likely to express a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the U.S. military with a noticeable decline that has persisted for the past five years. The latest numbers are from a June 1st to 22nd Gallup poll that also captured record lows in public confidence in several public institutions. Um, so if you see this chart here, this is U.S. confidence in the military. And it shot up in the 90s um, and shot up, you know, after 9-11, then went down and up. And now it's it's been steadily declining for the past five years or so. Um, so at 60% confidence in the military was last this low in 1997, and it hasn't been lower since 1988 when 58% were confident. 60% still, still seems kind of high to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Um, so if you want to go check out the details of that poll, you can go check that out. Um, that is it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Galen Carpenter. Americans need to acknowledge Washington's wartime atrocities. Uh, we have one from Ron Paul. Facebook files reveal despicable disregard for the Constitution. One from Caitlin Johnstone. The empire knows it's pouring Ukrainian blood into an unwinnable proxy war that's over at her substack. One from Jeffrey Sachs. The real history of the war in Ukraine. That's at the Kennedy Beacon substack. And our... Spotlight is from Daniel Larison, Russia and the U.S. spar in the skies over Syria. And that's over at Responsible Statecraft. That's it for me for today. You can always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Share the show with your friends. Tell them about antiwar.com. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with some more news for you. Thanks for listening.